Uh, we've been working our way through this. Uh, I think this might be our fourth fourth week, um, maybe fifth week in in this uh, short uh, letter, um, but a very powerful letter, very potent letter to be so brief. And the the general theme, as we've mentioned in this uh, in this letter, is the is the power of Christian love and forgiveness. It doesn't tell us everything about forgiveness. It doesn't tell us everything about reconciliation, but it. It illustrates for us how the biblical principles of love, reconciliation, forgiveness, repentance, all of those things sort of play themselves out in in a given situation. In this case, a relationship uh, in in the church between two two brothers, uh, Philemon and Onesimus. And then we see Paul's, certainly Paul's uh, involvement in this relationship, uh, how he's guiding both of these men. And uh, so there's just a, a lot for us to pull out of this. Again, it does, doesn't exhaustively tell us everything we need to know, um, but it is, I think, a pretty awesome thing that uh, it is in the New Testament canon. Um, I think it's very helpful for us to, to see how these things uh, do play out in the church and uh, really encourages us to, to consider what we might do in our own lives uh, to, to try to strive for these things um, in, in our own uh, relationships, and that's one of the things that we have uh, we've pointed out already is just the importance of relationships in in the Christian life and in our Christian lives. Uh, not avoiding close relationships, which uh, sometimes we are guilty of. Certainly not exploiting uh, relationships and exploiting others in a selfish or sinful way in our lives. Uh, not giving up on difficult relationships, but committing ourselves. To them, uh, commitment as believers to love God, uh, to love our neighbor, to love even our enemies, as Jesus emphasized in the Sermon on the Mount, and we have other other passages uh, directing us uh, to that. Uh, loving the lost, uh, loving our brothers and sisters in in the body of Christ, and so we've made the point that if you if you are a Christian, you have to be a a people person. Uh, sometimes people will say. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a people person, or that person is a, a people person, um, and 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 the the reality is, if you're not a people person, you can't fulfill the Great Commission. It's an impossibility. I mean, you cannot make disciples, you cannot win people to the Lord, you cannot establish them, help them to grow in their faith if you don't develop uh, close relationships. So when we meet someone, you know, we, we meet uh, perhaps someone we might put into that category of uh, that individual as a people person, meaning that person is sort of a gregarious person. They seem to make friends real easily. They're sort of the, the life of the party, uh, maybe type uh, of, of personality. But uh, one of the questions I think we have to ask is that when a, when a Christian uh, is, is always a person like that, if they are always talking about themselves, whether it's to brag about personal accomplishments or their own personal qualities, or maybe even to uh, talk about themselves in order to bring some sort of attention or focus to not necessarily their accomplishments, but their, their problems, the difficulties of their lives. Uh, maybe they're making friends in order to gain something for themselves, possibly using attention-getting tactics to draw attention to themselves. What, what is at the root of that? I mean, what's at the root of that? I mean, because we act like you know, that, that's a, you know, when we see someone that's like that, it's like, man, they're just a people person. But I'm saying we have to consider 
that may not be necessarily a God-honoring thing the way that they're acting, right? Because people like that, what, I mean, what could be a, a, a problem in that person's life if they're doing that? Okay, so we got, pro- so you got pride that's at the root of that. And, and what I would challenge you to, to consider is, is a, a similar question, but really towards the person, not, not, the, not the life of the party, not the outgoing person, not the person that has all these close, supposedly close relationships in their life. But what about Christians who don't have close relationships? What's at the root of that? I mean, what, what's at the root of a Christian's life if they don't have and are not striving to have close relationships with other believers, other non-believers? And, and what I would suggest to you is it's this right here. It's the same thing. It's no different. Uh, people like this sometimes uh, think that the trouble outweighs the benefits in relationships. So they, they're, they're, they're thinking, you know, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of hassle. It's a lot of disappointment to get close to people and then them not be or do what you expect them to be or to do. And so you just start weighing out, you know, what, you're, what you could get out of it and what you're investing or would have to invest in it. And you're just saying, listen, I would prefer not to. I'll just pull away. But I would say pride is, it, it, it is the same root. It's the same, same problem. Uh, some people may not have close relationships because they see themselves as so, sufficient, so self-sufficient that they don't need other people. So they, they, uh, you know, they don't need other people to be close to them. They can do this. They can study on their own. They can worship on their own. They can grow in the Lord on their own. They think very uh, in, in sort of independently uh, uh, of, of others. And uh, don't see the need to develop those relationships, and in, in, in some ways, they just believe they're they're wiser than God, right? Because Proverbs eighteen one says that he who he who isolates himself fights and quarrels against all sound wisdom. So he's just saying, you, you, people that pull away and that and that go off and isolate themselves and don't have close relationships, one of the reasons they might be doing that is because they actually are trying to guard and to protect. Right, what they selfishly want. They don't want people to challenge them. They don't want people to see the things in their life that need to be corrected and changed. Maybe they have some opinions, and they don't want other people to, to challenge them in those beliefs. And so they isolate themselves. We have all kinds of uh, warnings in scriptures, in the scriptures about that, uh, about not being that. And then we have all those exhortations in the New Testament towards our role and our function, our place within the body of Christ. We are a body. So if, if you're not striving, and I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not just saying if you don't have close relationships, I'm saying if you are not striving after those kinds of relationships, because it's not to say you're going to have a ton of, you know, close relationships. I'm just saying your goal should be to always be developing those things, to be getting closer and closer and closer to those in the body, not further and further and further away. To get closer and closer and closer to those in your life who don't know Christ so that they can see your life and perhaps they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, right? But if they don't know you and they don't spend time with you and you don't interact with them, then how are they supposed to see those things? And not just see them, but hear them, right? Because they can't be saved unless they hear the message of the gospel. It's not enough to just sit back and say, well, they just see my life. I'm just going to let them see my life. Well, that's good. Your life certainly, uh, you don't want your life to undermine the gospel. I mean, you want it to be in sync with what you believe, but I'm saying at some point you have to speak out 
uh, speak the truth in love. So we, we need to be striving, striving for these things. I think this is a letter that encourages us to, to do that. And in fact, um, Paul's, Paul's asking these men to do some pretty, uh, uh, some, to make some giant steps. I mean, when you're asking a, a brother to travel the distance that Onesimus would have to travel to get back to Philemon, when you're asking Philemon to risk his reputation and what other masters of slaves in the community would think about him as they see him possibly forgiving Onesimus for for his sins and possibly releasing him from his responsibilities and sending him back to Paul or something like that. I mean, there was a lot at stake here. And so Paul was asking great things of these men. I think it's just an exhortation, encouragement to us that it's going to be difficult to do these things, but we have to strive for them, have to continue to press toward them and pursue them. Uh, there are also, uh, we've considered three roles that we'll all be called to fulfill over and over again as, as believers in our lives. We're going to, in some cases, need to be that humble, repentant, offender. Uh, in other words, we're going to be in the, in the position sometimes where we, we are the ones that are sinning against other people and we need to humble ourselves and we need to confess and we need to repent. And, and, and seek reconciliation uh, with those whom we've sinned against. We have, in some, some cases, we're going to find ourselves in the position of needing to be that humble, forgiving, uh, offended. I don't know if that's the right word, so the offended or offendee, but the person who's been sinned against will be in that position many times in our Christian lives where somebody is going to be coming to us as the humble, repentant, offender saying, will you forgive me? And we need to be, have the right, the right attitudes, the right goals here. Uh, if this is going to work, if it's going to please the Lord. And then, and then occasionally we get put in the position of being that uh, also de- God-dependent, humble, peacemaking conciliator. In other words, we're the ones, that we're, the, we're in the middle here. We're sort of, we're the ones that are sort of coaching these other two individuals or other two parties. So that's, that's where, in this case, we have uh, the offender, Onesimus, in this particular letter. The one who's been, uh, been offended is Philemon, and the conciliator is Paul. So these, these three men sort of represent these three categories, and we're going to find ourselves in those positions and need to know what to do in each particular situation. Sometimes we're in more than one. I mean, there are situations where I'm both the one who needs to forgive and the one who needs to repent. And so there's an exchange, a lot of exchange of things that are going on there. Um, the reason I put this at the top is because this is the priority, right? I mean, even if a person in your life has sinned against you, if you sinned against them, you get the log, Matthew chapter 7, what? Out of your own eye first so that you can see clearly how to go and help, right? You'll be of very little value to this person if, you won't, if you're not willing to humble yourself first and, and to repent. So what we're going to do is we're going we're to continue to work through the, the letter. Uh, and I, I think we'll, we'll be able to get through the majority of the, the body of the letter next Sunday and then... That Sunday prior to Christmas, I'm going to kind of come back and give you, sort of pull it all together, not just what's here in this letter, but some other principles from Scripture 
on how to practically work through this so that you're not, uh, you're not missing some key ingredients. You're not missing some important steps along the way. So we'll sort of break these things down, kind of look at, look at a, a, a sort of a, a case study in that. So uh, we talked about the, the need to know, to, to be proficient at these things. We know that conflict is inevitable in the world, in the church, uh, in our homes, because we're all different. We have different opinions, convictions, priorities. We don't always communicate in a clear and godly way. And every once in a while, we choose to exalt ourselves rather than to prefer others and to, to, to honor Christ and to exalt Him. So thankfully, the Bible doesn't just explain how and why people offend and sin against us and we offend and sin against them, but the Bible provides a very bright light for our path in, in, in these relationships. Uh, the Bible tells us how to nip these things in the bud. Okay, so it gives us a lot of instruction on how to, in some cases, prevent conflict or to prevent conflict from sort of snowballing and getting worse, right? I mean, we have principles like Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So there's, there are times when someone comes at us, there's no conflict yet, right? Somebody's coming to us in a way that's not pleasing to God, but our response to that individual we're either headed into a conflict if we respond in a harsh way, right? Or we perhaps can just sort of throw water on this, right? This thing can be sort of snuffed out if we potentially, res- if we respond in, in, in the right way. James 1.19, if er- uh, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The L- Lord gives us a lot of instruction on how to have self-control and how to deal with these things in our hearts, how to deal with idols in our hearts so that if we're dealing with those in the right way, then we won't be selfishly, uh, jealously uh, sort of putting ourselves in, in these situations where conflict is, is more likely to, to erupt uh, and, and come up. So the, the, the Bible gives us instruction on how to nip conflict in the bud. It also tells us how to pursue reconciliation when re- relationships have already been strained, possibly already ruptured. Uh, the scriptures never tell us to just sweep things under the rug. Uh, and, and this is where this is the this is the this is the statement that I hear is probably one of the most the, the things that I hear the most often when it comes to conflict and people that are telling themselves that uh, they don't need to go have that difficult conversation that face to face visit with someone because love covers this is love covers you know and and what they're saying is you know let's just you know, love covers these things. We just need to let them go. We just need to move on. The problem is they don't do that. They don't move on. And, and they continue to think about these things. They continue to dwell on them. And the situation just gets worse. And, and you know it because the relate, if you look at that person and the individual they're talking about or these two different parties in this particular situation, they're not getting closer together. They're it, it best, they're trying to just stay where they are, but that never works. Eventually, they begin to do this. Right, so people can say all day long, yeah, love covers these things. The problem is you don't see this individual talking to this individual anymore. You don't see them doing the same things that they used to do. They're, they keep telling themselves, love's covering, love covers, love covers. But biblically, I think we've, we've misunderstood that. We'll, we'll, we'll talk some about that, I think, here in two weeks. So we are expected and empowered to respond to conflict in a new way, to, to apply the realities of the gospel, applying God's principles for problem solving and communication, following our example, 
in Christ, taking the initiative, showing mercy, turning conflict into an opportunity to glorify God. Now, looking uh, once again, if you'll see there, verse 8, these are some of the verses we talked about last time. He says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So, uh, here again, and Paul's already, I think, he started down this track even from the very beginning of the epistle in verse 1. But rather than leaning on Paul's apostolic authority, Paul does some different things here. Uh, he, he employs very purposeful but yet very powerful and, and tender language. He's very The thing that strikes me as I read through this is just the selection of words that Paul uses. He's just very careful how he communicates because this is a delicate situation. I mean, he is again, he's asking Philemon to do something that's risky. Um, and so he's very careful about how he, he sort of makes his approach here. Uh, we could say he shepherds Philemon through this situation. He's not just saying, you must do this, you have to do this. Now, Paul could have done that, um, but he chooses not to do that in this case. He's very very careful about his, his words, very careful about how he presents this. Uh, he reminds Philemon that what he is about to suggest that Philemon do is, is proper. You notice that there in verse 8, which is just a, a word. It, it means to be suitable or uh, to, 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 be, uh, to be in line with one's nature, um, fitting. So he's just saying it's fitting, it's proper, it's, it's a Christian's nature to want to do what I'm about to ask you to do. That's what he's basically saying is, if you were a Christian, wouldn't you want to do this? And so he's sort of laying these things out there for Philemon. Instead of saying, do this, it's almost as if he's sitting back with Philemon, sort of looking off, and, and, and instead of pointing the finger at Philemon, it's as if he's got his arm around Philemon, and he's pointing to the goal or the objective, and he's saying, don't you think that would be a worthy goal? Don't you think that's what a Christian should do? Isn't that a proper thing for a Christian to do? <laughs> Waiting for Philemon to go, yeah. And then Paul turn and say, well, brother, that's really what I'm just asking you to do. Is that thing right there that's fitting for a Christian to want and to desire and to pursue, that's what I want you to do. It's just very, very uh, creative in the way that he addresses this. Paul appeals to Philemon on the most intimate level that he knew. He, he appeals on that level of love between fellow Believers, fellow Christians, he treats Philemon as a co-worker in the gospel uh, and as an equal uh, by using in verse 6 this, this term we talked about, this koinonia, this fellowship. So, so again, it's not this, I'm the apostle telling you and dictating to you what you must do. But in this case, he's, he's wanting Philemon to know that his view of Philemon is a view of great respect, that he sees Philemon as someone who's sharing in this gospel work. He's participating in these things. Paul presents himself as an older spiritual brother, not, not just an older man, but a, but a wiser man. Uh, he speaks freely. He, he speaks frankly, fearlessly. He speaks with what we call Christian candor. Yet he bends over backwards to avoid any hint of authoritarianism. So, 
Paul's not beating around the bush. You know, when he's when he employs this language and he and he takes this approach, it's not because Paul's afraid to say these things that he's afraid to speak the truth. Uh, he's just very careful that he doesn't come across as as heavy-handed. And man, that is just a I mean, that's just a, a bucket, a boatload right there of wisdom for anybody that's in any position of leadership. I mean, for a father, for a husband, for a boss, uh, for a pastor. If you're in any sort of leadership role, it's just it's just a reminder to be careful that you don't get in this habit of of somehow you just lean strictly on the position that God has given to you, but that you realize you've got to you've got to that's a stewardship. You've got to be careful how you use that. And so Paul's just very, very concerned about that, not afraid to, to say, thus saith the Lord, but just wanting to see God in Christ glorified in this situation and thinking carefully about what is the best approach. And that's what I'm saying is sometimes it's, it's not those thou shalts and thou shalt not statements. It's all that collective wisdom of Scripture, all that proverbial wisdom of Scripture that you have to bring into the picture to say, yeah, maybe I've had a conversation like this before, or maybe I've approached a situation like this in the past, and I did it this way every time. But maybe in this case, I need to step back and pray and go to the Word and say, maybe there's a different way of approaching this in this particular situation that would yield a better result in the end, a more God-honoring result in the end. So it's just weighing these things out. Um, and again, we, you know, we could look at this and just say, what's the big deal? It's two brothers. <laughs> I mean, I mean, send them back or don't even send them back. He's Paul. He's so useful to you. Why, why does he even have to go do this? And if he goes back, I mean, send them back. And what happens after that, Paul, it's really not all that big of a deal. I mean, you have so little control over this. I mean, you're hundreds of miles away and yet this weighs, you can feel the weight of this. Paul, this is a very important thing to him. So Paul could have commanded Philemon in this matter. In fact, we said any Christian apostle or not can tell a brother or sister in Christ to do what they ought to do. It's not wrong for us to do that, to say, you know, the Lord says you should be living this way. But in wisdom, Paul chooses a different path in this particular scenario. He wants his friend to do what is right, but would not command because he wants Philemon to draw his own conclusions to make his own decision about what was fitting and proper in Christ to do. Verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Uh, As we pointed out, when Onesimus ran away, he was not a believer. But when he came into contact with Paul, with Paul's ministry, the Holy Spirit worked in his heart. He repented. He became Paul's son in the faith. He was transformed. He was different. He, he was not the same man who ran away from his master Philemon. And then Paul says this about Onesimus in verse 11, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. So a very interesting way to describe the change in uh, Onesimus's life. And we pointed this out. So wordplay, Onesimus's name here means use, his name means useful. Uh, slaved, slaves of that day bore their names, either either slave dealers gave them a name to sort of extol their, 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 their character or their, use, their, their usefulness, what they would bring to the table, their wares, or sometimes masters would give them names to express their, their hopes. The master would hope that his, 
In this case, maybe Philemon hoped that Onesimus would be a, a useful slave. And certainly Onesimus may have been that before he left at some point. Uh, he may have once been a helpful, uh, a productive slave in Philemon's household, but was certainly useless to Philemon once he ran away. And so Paul says, listen, he, he, was, he, he is useless. He was that, but now he is, he is useful. And he's, he's useful not just to Paul in many ways, but he is also useful to uh, Philemon. And uh, so Paul, Paul and Onesimus, we don't know all the details. We, we know that based on just what Paul says here, that they, were very, they had grown very close. Paul must have believed that, that Onesimus was indispensable to the work going on uh, in Rome. Uh, and this was a difficult decision for Paul. I mean, this was not an easy decision for Paul to send him away. Uh, this wasn't just about Paul sending Onesimus back because Onesimus had broken Roman law, which he had by, by fleeing his master. But Paul was thinking much on a much deeper level than that. He, he was viewing this entire situation through, again, that through, through a gospel lens. So Philemon wasn't going back as a criminal, but Paul says Philemon is going back primarily as a brother which would ultimately change the rules of engagement. There was this would, the fact that, that, that Onesimus has come to, to know Christ is going to change the way that Philemon is going to deal with him when he returns. Philemon would not drag him before the secular authorities for his actions. I mean, that, that's what would happen. I mean, for, the, for that matter, it was okay, it was proper in that day for a master to actually have a runaway slave put to death if he wanted to do that. Uh, but that's certainly not what Paul expected of Philemon. He would need to deal with Onesimus in the context of the Christian community. To, in other words, to deal with this as a family matter. Uh, not so much on that sort of civil level, but to see this as, 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 a, as a family issue, a family problem where relationships are elevated above the material things of this life. Uh, Shane preached uh, several weeks ago in 1 Corinthians. You'll remember this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 1. Paul says, Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels and how much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? Now, is it ever right to involve the courts or civil authorities in situations involving believers. I mean, is that ever right to do that? I, I mean, I would say it is. I mean, I, I would say this isn't like a blanket statement that says never enter a courtroom. I mean, I know people that do that. I mean, they're like, <laughs> they almost look at the judicial system itself as if it's sinful and evil. Like we would never step foot in a courtroom. And, and I don't think that's the, the point here. I, I, think, I think the issue 
here is that when when conflict arises between believers, that's not the first thing we think of. We don't immediately rush to, okay, I'm taking my brother to court or I need to involve civil authorities. Our first look should be to the church. Our first look should be to the body of Christ, to those leaders, those spiritual leaders, to the word of God. There's so many other principles that we need to consider when conflict arises in the church in between believers. And and we need to be careful not to go around those principles. So, you know, we can say this civil and based on Romans 13, civil authorities have been established by God. Right. And it is this. We use the same word Paul uses here. It is fitting. It is proper for us to be in subjection to those governing authorities, to not see those things as enemies. (laughs) Those are things that have been established by God. But as we deal with these things, brother between brother and brother and brother and sister and sister and sister within the body, we have to take into account all of these other, this great wealth of of other truths, principles that would guide us in, in how to navigate through those kinds of circumstances. So this was, this was Paul's first appeal to Philemon. It, Onesimus is different. He is a, he was a worthless runaway, but now he is truly useful and and, and he would return, Onesimus would return ready to serve Philemon, as Colossians 3.22 says, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Useful to Paul, useful to Philemon, useful to the church, useful to the Lord. So we need to think redemptively about our relationships. So Paul's first appeal for Onesimus focused on the current usefulness of Onesimus to both Philemon and Paul. In Paul's second appeal, he petitions Philemon to accept Onesimus back as a beloved brother. So he sort of expounds on this idea that he, he's, he's, he wants Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a brother in the Lord, not as a slave, or even say not strictly as that. I'll pick up here in verse 12. He says, I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. So again, Onesimus was a transformed man. Uh, he was a man who sought Philemon's forgiveness. So he's seeking that. He's pursuing that. He's doing the right thing. We, we know that he was repentant um, by the very fact that he's returning to Philemon. Because <laughs> he, I said, he could have just told Paul, no, thank you. Uh, I really would rather stay here in Rome than to go back. And then certainly he could have gotten derailed or sidetracked between Rome and Colossae. I mean, those are cities very a great distance apart. But by the very fact that Philemon is going there, not not knowing for sure what the outcome would be, is an indication that he was humble. That he was this humble, repentant offender. He went from being useless to being useful, serving Paul during his house arrest and ready to serve Philemon. He was faithful, so faithful and dear to Paul that Paul says that sending him back was like sending his very heart. And and the word here, we've already actually seen this. Uh, Paul's used this term back in verse 7 when he was actually 
commending Philemon, and he says, because they're at the second part of verse 7, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. That, that phrase, the, the heart of the saint, the hearts of the saints, in fact, he'll bring it up again at the very end of verse 20. He says, yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart. All three times this word is translated heart. It's actually the word in the New Testament for bowels. So uh, in, 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 that, in, in Jewish thinking, the bowels were considered sort of the, the location of the emotions. So even though it's translated heart, um, it's, it's, it's as if Paul's saying, this is gut-wrenching, Okay. This is tearing me up emotionally. I mean, that, that's, kind of, that's, the, that's kind of the picture here. He's saying, listen, I, I have come to know and to love this man so much so that it is gut-wrenching gut for me to see him go, to see him go back. As much as Paul knows that this is, this is needful, I mean, this is needful for Onesimus to go back. Paul's just saying this is not an easy decision. This is difficult. That, that part of me wanted badly for him to stay here because he was such an asset, such an encouragement, such a help. And notice what Paul says, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. So, in other words, Paul, Paul's making an assumption that, that that is what Philemon would have wanted. In other words, first... If possible, for Philemon to have been in Rome with Paul, ministering to Paul himself. It's like Paul's, again, it's, it's just a creative way for Paul to sort of set, in a way, set Philemon up. He's saying, well, listen, I, I know that if you had the liberty, you would, have, you would have come to Rome. You would have come in person to minister to me, to me. But I know that, well, since that didn't work out, well, the next best thing worked out. And the next best thing is that your slave, Onesimus, he came and ministered to me in the way that I know that you would have if you were here yourself. So it's, it's, like, it's like, at this point, what is Philemon? I mean, it's like he's going to get Philemon in such a, a, a situation where, I mean, Philemon can't hardly say no, right? And again, Paul's not, I don't think, it's not manipulation, Paul's not manipulating here. I, I just think he, it's, it's, it's biblical wisdom. It's, it's knowing people. It's knowing how to relate to people. It's, it's knowing how to use biblical truth in, 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 in creative ways, right? I mean, to say, I mean, we call it loving leverage, right? It's, it's putting leverage on people, but not in a, because it's not for selfish gain. That's why it's not sinful. It's not so that I can get what I want. It's, it's so that we can... We can achieve what something that's going to be that's going to point people to Christ. It's going to magnify when this exchange takes place. When this this man who has who has sinned against his master goes back and humbles himself, and when this master, who has every right to say, "I want to put this man to death," or "I'm just going to make his life miserable," or "I'm going to make him do more work," when he's when he forgives, think about what that does for the gospel. And so Paul's just saying, seeing this as such an opportunity to magnify the gospel and what Christ has done for us. And the fact that we're not only forgiven people, but we should be forgiving people. Paul's saying, listen, that's my goal. I'm not doing this for me. I'm, this, was, this was at a great cost to me to send him back. But 
I know, Philemon, that you love me so much and you, you are so concerned about the saints and the work of the ministry that if you could have left your responsibilities at home and come and been with me, you would have. But guess what? You couldn't be here, but your slave could be. And he treated me and he served me and he helped me in the same way that I know you would have if you would have been here. So it's just, just, a, it's just an amazing thing that Paul has this, just, just, it's just, it's, it's like a, another worldly perspective. It's, it's like, it's, it's so unearthly. It's so different from the way that we think. It's just seeing this through God's hand. It's seeing this through God's work. It's seeing this through the, the word of God and the work of God in, in, in redemptive history and realizing that, it, that, that when we talk about redemptive history, it's not just all those big things happening out there. It's not just what's going on between the nations. It's what's going on between you and your, and your spouse. It's what's going on between you and your children and you and a coworker. That that's where it's, that's the level that it's happening and that that's a serious thing. That's a, that's a powerful, it's a powerful thing. So Paul affirms the gracious and loving character of Philemon. But Paul doesn't want to presume on their friendship. He, he doesn't want Philemon to act under compulsion. He doesn't want to move forward without Philemon's consent. Paul knows that these two men need to resolve the problem between them. Uh, he places a premium on face-to-face reconciliation. And Paul wants Philemon to observe the transformation in the life of his runaway slave and witness his value and his youth, usefulness firsthand. So it's not just Paul saying, yeah, Onesimus is a different man. He's saying, I want to send him back to you because I want you to see just how useful. I want you to see just how different this man is. So instead of just telling you, hey, he's here, he's different, but I need him. Paul's saying he's changed, he's transformed, and I've got to send him back because you've got to see this. You've got to see how this man has gone from a person who is worthless and useless to someone who's so useful and so helpful. Now, well, yes, sir? I mean, it's a good point. You're kind of right on the precipice of it in 14, 15, 16. But it's so easy to sit here 2,000 years later, right? But I think about Paul, and I think about that day that he was knocked off his high horse in such a powerful way, just fundamentally just swept away from who he was into who God has purposed him to be. And then you just look at, you know, you're, you're, he writes the book of, to, to the Romans in, in 57-ish, he arrives in Rome in 60, and now he's in prison, and he's been given the ministry to the, to the Gentile world and just the, the amazing providence of God to bring this guy to him however that happened and for him to just see how God is unfolding his plan um, right in front of him it's so easy for us to, to lose sight of that 2,000 years later just exactly what you said God's unfolding that plan millions of different ways through millions of different lives every single day just like this. And he's just so overwhelmed with the fact that God is working so personally and so intimately 
right there in the middle of this situation. And God's doing that right now. Yeah, and we don't know it because we're in the middle of it. See, we can look back on the Apostle Paul's life and go, man, what a key significant figure in the life of the church. <laughs> now, Paul understood that what he was doing, it's not to say Paul didn't know that what he was doing was significant and, and, and important because Jesus gave him explicit instructions and, and told him, this is what it's going to be. This is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to be treated. I mean, he was given some pretty, uh, some, some, some pretty clear details on the front end of his, of his ministry that not everybody has. Um, he understood, the, I think, to, to some extent, the, the impact of what he was doing, what it would have. But I'm saying, if you had that kind of clarity, if you, if you knew that the Lord had commissioned you in such a, such a unique way, it would just be so easy to say that what is going on right now in my life is so much more important than what's going on between these two men. See, it'd be very temp- the temptation would have been for Paul, knowing how significant what he was doing, to say, I need this man here because the work I'm doing is so important and so significant. But it's as if Paul's saying, I'm willing to give up a great assistant, a great helper, a great brother here, honestly not even knowing if he's going to make it back. I mean, this isn't like he jumps on a plane you know, a nonstop flight to Colossae, right? I mean, this is a, a pretty treacherous journey to go back there. He's a runaway slave, so there's that potential that he would be captured or caught or something would happen between here and there, which again is why part of the reason why I think Paul sends a, someone traveling with him. I think there's other reasons for that as well. But it's, it's Paul saying, what I'm doing here is important, but I'm not going to minimize that what God is doing between these two brothers is going to be as impactful in different ways than maybe what I'm doing. And so it just, it's Paul knowing the significance of the stewardship that God had given to him, but not allowing the breadth and the depth and the magnitude of that stewardship to somehow envelop and overwhelm what God was doing in other people's lives to that kind of detail into that kind of level in a person's life, their Christian life, a relationship with one other person, that Paul would put such a premium on that. I think it just speaks volumes of, 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 of exactly who Paul was and why he made such a significant impact on the early church because he was able to faithfully guard and entrust that treasure to other men and disciple other men, and yet he was a man who pursued relationships. He was a, rela- he was a people person, he, and he made things right. I mean, don't think that Paul never offended, and that Paul never sinned against somebody, that Paul never had a, said a harsh word and didn't have to go and humble himself. That, that, that would not be Paul. That's, not, that's just not reality. He, he knew these things because he was, I would say he was proficient. Because he, he knew what it was like to go and humble himself. He knew what it was like to have someone come and, can, and to seek his forgiveness and have to just, yes, in mercy, say, yes, I forgive you. I'm not going to hold this over your head. I'm not going to have this, this dark clouds not going to be over you for the rest of your life. I'm going to embrace you. In fact, Paul's telling the church at 2 Corinthians, you guys are, are, in, are on, the, on a very, you're, you're in a very dangerous position because there's a brother in the church that has repented and you're not loving him. You're not bringing him back in. You're not being forgiving. That's a dangerous place. I'm just saying, for Paul to be able to say those things, I mean, don't you think that Paul lived those things? 
He knew what that was like. He knew, he knew the, the temptation to, to withhold forgiveness from someone. He knew the temptation of, to, to minimize his own sin and to not go and humble himself before another brother or sister and to say, I'm sorry that I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? That's why he was able to give such clear instruction to us, I think, because he, li- he lived these things. Well, let me, let me park here just for a minute and point out some important things. This is concerning the role of, of, of the peacemaker, um, the, the conciliator. Uh, if you're in that, when, when you find yourself in that role, there are several things I think you're going to have to do over and over again. Uh, several things you're going to have to remind these people, things you're going to have to remind them. If you're in this position these are some things you're going to have to remind people that are in these two other, uh, other two, these other two roles. Uh, when those people are in, in a conflict, number one, you're going to have to help those in, in, in the conflict to elevate the relationship above the material substance. You're, you're going to have to help them elevate the relationship above, above the material substance. Uh, it's not as if the material things don't matter at all, but the material things, material things are not created in the image of God. People are. And, and there is a, there's going to be a tendency for people that are in a conflict to minimize their relationship and to elevate the material things. There are material things involved. In fact, in this, we'll get there next Sunday where Paul makes a statement about if, if, uh, if it cost Philemon some things materially, if Onesimus' actions cost him materially, Paul's saying, listen, I'm not going to just pretend like that didn't happen. I want to make those things right, but let's not ever allow the material things to overtake the relationship. And I'm saying people get honed in. I'm telling you, people get honed in on the material things. Somebody borrowed something, they broke it. Somebody did this and it cost them time, it cost them money. And, and, and the material just goes up, up, up in value. And I'm saying we, we've got to help people to see this is what, treasures in heaven, store up treasures in heaven. What are treasures in heaven? They're people, relationships, and things that lead to those kinds of relate, redemptive relationships. Because material things aren't going to go beyond this life, but people are. And so, so don't get these things reversed. You're going to have to help people to keep those things in pro- proper perspective. You're also going to have to help those in conflict to understand and embrace their individual God-given responsibilities in the relationship because people tend to focus on what they think the other person or people should be doing. So one of your roles, if you're in this position, is to help these individuals sort out their own God-given responsibilities because they're, in most cases, going to be honed in on not what God expects them to do, but on what they think that other person should do, right? So it's, if this person, oh, I'm ready to forget, but I mean, I, I just, I don't think they're repentant. I don't think they're humble. I don't think this, I don't think that. And it's like, I mean, that, that person doesn't have a chance. You know, I mean, they're, they're already, they've got a list of 20 things they expect that person to do. That person's not going to do those 20 things. Reconciliation is never going to happen that way. So I'm just saying, you've got to get them focused on what the Lord tells them their next step needs to be and help them to take that next step. The third thing is you're, you're going to have to help those in the conflict to consider God's sovereignty in the many ways that he might be using a situation to glorify himself and to benefit 
those individuals involved. Notice what he says here in verse 15. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. That is a very interesting way to describe Onesimus' illegal flight. (laughs) He doesn't say... Onesimus left you, or Onesimus stole from you, or Onesimus took off. Or he, in other words, the action in this verse is not, it's, the subject is not Onesimus and what he did. It's on what happened. In fact, it's in the passive voice. Notice what he says there. Onesimus was separated from Philemon. Well, that doesn't seem right. It, it almost seems like it's kind of letting Onesimus off the hook. It's like, as if, what, somebody took Onesimus away? As if he was separated? As if Onesimus wanted to stay there, but I go and I get him and I take him away from Philemon, and so therefore I'm separating him from Philemon. But that's the way Paul describes this. In other words, the, the emphasis is not on the fact that Onesimus committed this crime and left on his own. He's made a choice to do that. This was his sinful decision to do this. In this particular verse, Paul's putting the emphasis on, it's as if something's going on here that's beyond that. And and so it's it's not Paul trying to tone down Onesimus' guilt. He's not trying to minimize what Onesimus did. But he's suggesting what? And I would say he's suggesting that God's providence was at work, that, that God was realizing his good intentions at every point. You'll remember back with Job. In Job chapter, chapter 1, uh, there in verses 12 down to verse 19, it tells all the things that happened to Job's family and to Job's possessions. And what's interesting is when you get down to Job one twenty one. After all that unfolds, Job says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you're, you're, you're thinking, wait a minute, God took away? Whoa, whoa, no, 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 you, you, you missed the text. Verse 13 to verse 15 tells us that it was the Sabaeans who came and killed the servants and made off with Job's oxen and donkeys. Uh, Verse 16 tells us that it was lightning or some sort of fire from heaven that killed his sheep and shepherds. Verse 17 tells us it was the the Chaldeans who raided and stole his camels. Verse 19 tells us that it was a great wind that knocked down his house and claimed the lives of his sons and daughters. So if it was was the wind and it was the Chaldeans and it was this and it was that, why is Job saying the Lord took it away? And I think the reason Job does that is because Job understands, he rightly understood that forces of nature, whether it's wind, lightning, whether it's greedy, violent people, that all of these things do their deeds within God's providence. The Heidelberg Catechism, I love this, it's question 27. What do you mean by the providence of God is the question. He says, the, the, the Catechism says, the almighty and everywhere present power of God whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven and earth and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, poverty, yea, and all things come 
not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The very next question, what advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things? Answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. So Paul says, perhaps Onesimus was for this reason separated for you from you for a while. He says perhaps because God's providence is only perceived in outline fashion through hindsight. Right? We don't we don't know that what's going on right now. We can't say God is providentially doing this right now in my life. We we know that all that's going on in our lives is unfolding. It's all under his care, it's all his sovereignty, but providence is something that we look back on and see how God used these things. So Paul says, maybe, just maybe, God took the sinful, rebellious, and criminal actions of Onesimus and used them to accomplish his own purposes, to bring Onesimus to faith in Christ and to bless Philemon, not just with a more useful slave, but a fellow believer sharing the same eternal life. He was doubly blessed. He would gain the physical service of Onesimus as a slave and his spiritual service as a fellow believer in Christ, And as he says here, Philemon would have him back forever. So Paul reminds Philemon of the activity of God in this situation. He he insinuates that Onesimus' flight may have had some divine purpose, a possibility that would certainly make it easier for Philemon to forgive Onesimus because the less malicious intent that we attribute to the person who violates us in some way, the less anger we feel toward them. In other words, if we, if we feel like that, 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 that a person was more malicious towards us, then we struggle more with, with forgiving them. <laughs> so it's almost like Paul's trying to take the edge off of it by saying, I know that you're grieved and that you were hurt and that you were offended by what Onesimus did. But if truly he was separated from you by God to bring him to faith in Christ, for him to be useful to me, and then to return to you, not just as a slave, but as a brother that you would spend eternity with this man, then that will make it easier for Philemon to forgive. And if God is the one who transformed Onesimus, and if he is the one who separated the slave from Philemon for a season in order to effect that transformation, then Philemon would certainly need to consider what God's will is for Onesimus. So now Philemon's going to have to wrestle with not only what is God's will for him, but what is God's will for this brother? Is it simply for him to return to Philemon and to serve him more industriously, just to be a better slave? Or is it for him to be set free for greater service in the gospel? And that's the next place that Paul goes. And he makes a third appeal. We'll look at it next week, verses 17 to 22. Any last comments? I guess just the, you think about Paul as well, and he's, he's also seen in First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy. Um, he sees the, the, the disunity that's coming into the church. I mean, you go two decades later, maybe three, and you're out in the Book of Revelations, and you see those churches that he's so intimately 
aware of and involved in and just the, the condemnation that's upon those churches already. So these, these individual situations like this are just so vital to Paul into the strength of the body of Christ that he already sees is going to, the wolves are there. Yeah. Well, and it just shows, this, these things make a difference, not just in our lives personally, but they have an effect on the greater body. And that's the, we, we, we tell ourselves they don't, but they do. They affect other relationships uh, and, and on, on many levels. So, again, these things aren't going to happen naturally, folks. These, these kind of things aren't going to just creep suddenly into your Christian life. You've got to make these things a goal of your Christian life. You've got to strive for these kinds of relationships. So we'll look at Paul's third appeal next time, and then again, the week following that, we'll try to pull a lot of these things together and actually walk through sort of this dynamic and exchange and what your responsibilities are depending on what side of the equation you're on, or if you are that sort of conciliator that's helping two others work through a situation like that. Okay? Thank you for your time.